0: morning, guys. Good to see you. Good to be with you and see some of your faces. Some I haven't seen in a while. This is awesome. So, um, anyways, I want to invite you, if you haven't yet, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Leave those things open, and uh, you're going to want to follow along as we work through this passage together uh, this morning. Just keep your eyes on those pages. I'm curious, are you familiar with uh, Patriot's Day? You guys familiar with Patriot's Day? You know Patriot's Day? I'm not talking about the the incredible film starring Marky Mark Wahlberg, but, you know, the the actual day that we kind of reflect on, and it's commemorated in April every year. You know, the day that um, kind of commemorated the beginning of the Revolutionary War, you know. It's when it's when the shots were first fired, you know, and action actually began. It was the birth, we celebrate kind of the birth of a country that was beginning, you know. It began as a rebellion though, didn't it? Uh, people were, were wanting to throw off a king. They were wanting to throw off another kingdom, weren't we, right, we're trying to get rid of. English sort of rule in our lives, and we, we wanted to start a new nation. So, so, what did we do? What did we do? Well, we, we gathered people, didn't we? We gathered weapons. We gathered ammunition so that we could fight. So, we did. And, and this is common throughout history, is it not? I mean, this is kind of what people do. When you want to be rid of another king, another kingdom, you, you kind of gather people together, you, you create armies, and then you attack. That's how kingdoms overcome other kingdoms in this world. Uh, But there is one king who is very different than that. And he gathered his men together, and he sent them forward, but with no weapons. He actually sent them forward empty-handed with only the message of the kingdom and with His healing power, right? This king that we see this morning it is so unique, and his kingdom is unlike any other kingdom in this world. And guys, actually what we're seeing this morning is the birth of a new nation, if you will, uh, the reality that the Apostle Peter would speak to in his first letter of 1 Peter when he says, uh, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, right, a people for Jesus' own Possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. But This is sort of the beginnings of that, if you will. So today, the things that I'd like us to see in this passage that, that really are, are clear to us is that in verses 1 through 9, we see that this kingdom spreads. This kingdom spreads. And it spreads in a very countercultural way. It spreads through God's people in very countercultural ways ways. But this kingdom spreads. And the second thing that we see in verses 10 through 17 is that this kingdom satisfies. This kingdom satisfies. And it satisfies like nothing else in this world. That's what Luke's showing us today, that this kingdom spreads and it satisfies. So let's look at how this kingdom spreads in verses 1 through 9. Okay, let's, let's read this again. It says, "...and he called the twelve together, and Jesus gave them power and authority, Over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you when you leave that town, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Right, he sends them out in pairs, we're going to see Him do this with 72 disciples in chapter 10 when we actually get to that portion sometime next year, but He gathers the 12 and He sends them out in pairs and look at what He gives them. Look at what He gives them in verse 1, what does He equip them with? Power, authority, and a message, that's what they have. Look at what they're to take with them, they're to travel very light, aren't they? He says, take nothing for your journey, <laughs> that's pretty light, Right? I mean, I can't think of anything more light than nothing, you know? So, this is what they have. This is what Jesus says. I send you out empty-handed. Why? Why empty-handed? Well, it's so that they would trust God and that everybody else who experiences their ministry would know that it was a ministry of God, that it was, it was an absolute trust in God. They have nothing other than the message and the same power that Jesus has, I mean, this would have just dramatically distinguished them from all the other traveling preachers of this day, because people would go around, they would travel, they would preach, philosophers, rabbis, but all these other traveling preachers, when they would go around, they would be really well provided for. They would actually uh, travel with a lot of things with them. This is how they would often travel. But Jesus is showing that His kingdom is unlike every other kingdom. They didn't come to overthrow people by force, but they came empty-handed with just the message of the gospel. So how are they to behave? Well, verse four, they were to stay where they were received. Now, I can't think of anything more like counterculturally anti-Western than this. You just show up at people's houses and they just take you in for an indefinite amount of time. I mean, if someone shows up at your house today, you like turn off the lights and lock the doors and hide, right? I mean, you're, you're maybe skeptical enough to barely open the door a little bit, you know? But these people, they just showed up and those who received them, they were to stay there and their peace was to come upon that place. But we notice here that they're not supposed to be looking for upgrades. They're not supposed to stay somewhere and when something better opens up, they're supposed to move to that other place. No, they're not looking for upgrades. They're not looking for better situations, they stay. So so Jesus sends them out to do these two things, to preach the kingdom of God and to heal people. And this is clearly an extension of Jesus' own ministry. We've been seeing this. These were the things that Jesus himself has been doing. And so his disciples, these 12, are supposed to be concerned with people's souls and with people's bodies. Right? They're supposed to minister to people in word and deed. Right? So how does this kingdom spread? Right? Well, it's through the king's people. Do you see that? It's through the king's people. Now, in some ways, the instructions that are given here are kind of unique, maybe to the specific moment. They're not supposed to be like this prescriptive thing in every single way. It's, it's a short-term missions project. So you wouldn't go out on a short-term missions project and say, I have to do this exact thing right here. And we kind of know this because when you read the book of Acts, which Luke actually wrote as well, it's a continuation of this gospel, we see that when the church actually is formed and begins to spread, we don't see people doing this exact same thing here. But certainly, even though there's things that are unique here, there are things that are meant to be uh, helpful for us, things that we should be applying that are relevant for us. There are principles to take from this. So in some ways, like them, The gospel is at the very center of what we are to be about, is it not? Right? Their message is our message, that we are to be good news spreaders, not bad news spreaders, not advice spreaders. We are good news spreaders. We spread that there is a, a king unlike any other king that has come into this world, and he has established his kingdom ultimately and finally, not through force, but through laying down his own life in death and taking it back up again after three days so that anybody who would come to this king can enter that kingdom through receiving his death as their death, his resurrection is their de- as their resurrection. They would receive this forgiveness of sins and enter into the kingdom. That's, that's how you become a citizen of this kingdom, It's through receiving the king's death for you. This is, this is the message that we are to spread this is our message, what we're to share, we're to minister in word, but also in deed, just like them. We must never forget that there are ministries that we should be active in that flow from the gospel. Like, the deed itself, the ministry itself is not the gospel, but because of the gospel and because we have believed the gospel as God's people, it changes us. As God has been compassionate to us, we are compassionate to other people. As God has loved us, we are to love other people. What we have received, we are to give. And that is demonstrated through the actions of our lives. We could create lots of lists of things that are good things that we do as a demonstration that we have received the good news that would accompany the sharing of the good news. It means that we don't stop sharing just so we do good deeds. That wouldn't be very helpful it doesn't mean that we just share with the absence of those deeds. That might be a sign that we may not be believing the actual message that we're sharing. So there's lots of ways that we've tried to do this as a church over the years. I think one that came to mind this week uh, was last year, how at Christmas time we, we gathered bags and supported um, Project 48, which is a ministry that seeks to support foster kids in the first 48 hours of them entering into a new home. Right, just, just purchasing things for these kids during the most difficult season of their life. And saying, we we love you, we see you, right? Like like doing something that demonstrates that kind of love. And and honestly, in a couple of weeks here, we're going to be, we're going to be, or actually next week, I believe, we're going to be doing that again. We're going to be announcing that and having you be involved in those kinds of things. Giving those bags is not the gospel, right? But but as we believe the gospel, we we show the gospel in in its demonstrations in these ways. There's implications. This is what they're doing. And so this mission is to be for all. I just want to ask us this morning, are we engaged in the mission? Are you engaged in the mission? Do you you realize that you have been sent by Jesus? Do you realize that? Are you on offense this morning? Are you on offense? Are you a part of the mission? I'm not asking if you're in favor of the mission. I'm not asking if you would say, oh, I think the mission's great. I'm not opposed to it. I support it. I'm asking, are we involved in it, right? Are we involved in the ministry that shares the gospel and doing things that flow from the gospel, implications of it, not just watching people do it, not just reading about it, not just talking about it, not just theorizing about it, but but engaging in it. The mission, this kingdom, spreads through God's people, people like you and me. And it happens because God empowers us to do that. So as we join in this mission, we too, I think, are to be careful that we travel light in this world, it could be easy to accommodate a lot, can it? Like them, we are to trust. Uh, we, our trust should not be in our own strength. It should not be in our own efforts, but in the God who empowers us for the mission. I can't imagine that the disciples were like, oh, I've been ready for this, you know? I'm, I'm sure most of them would be like, I don't, I don't know, I need another class, you know, or something, right? But, but as we look across East County, we believe that our hope is in the power of God, is it not? Right? We want to be faithful, to, to labor for the things that God has called us to labor for, knowing that our labor is not in vain, but our hope is not in our labor, our hope is in the power of God. Right? We don't want to live self-reliant lives, we live according to the power of God. And I think, thirdly, just like them, Jesus sends us out now. He sends us out now, like today. Again, not, not when we feel like we're ready, not when we, we get that one more class, not we just, I've got to read one more book, that kind of thing, but Today. No, the kingdom is spreading, and it spreads through God's people. But what are the responses that we should expect, right? This passage is showing us that as the kingdom spreads, there are some responses that we should expect. The first one that we see is reception. We see in verse 5, if you look down there, that there will be people who receive the gospel, okay? Do you believe that? It might sound like the, I just, I said that, and you're like, of course, right? But no, do you believe that, that people will actually receive the gospel, would that be surprising to you, right? To receive the disciples here is to receive this, this message. And I think we as people should be prepared that others that we share with would actually receive the gospel. I, a little confessional here. A couple of years ago, I was praying and just realizing, I was like, Lord, it's been a long time since I've been able to share the gospel with somebody. Like, could I just, would you give me that opportunity to share with somebody? You know, that, that, that's all I was hoping for couldn't believe it. It was genuine prayer. I believed. The next day, I go and meet with this guy. He's interested in joining the church that we were at at the time. I sit down with him, thinking I'm just going to, you know, get to know this guy or whatever. We start talking about faith, the gospel. He's never heard of it before. So, I'm like, oh, well, let me tell you about it, you know. I'm, like, sharing the gospel with him, just thinking this student's going to be like, oh, no, I'm cool. I'm just here to hang out, that kind of thing. The guy's face lights up, Right? And he immediately is like, this is literally what I've been wondering about. This is what I've been hoping for. This is what I believe. And I was just like, oh, uh, do you, you know, do you want to, you know, do you want to pray? You want to receive Christ? That kind of thing, you know what I mean? And I was kind of embarrassed in that moment that I'm praying that God would give me an opportunity to share the gospel, and God's like, oh, sure, I have something lined up for you. And then I would even be shocked by it, right? People receive the gospel, you guys. Not everyone is hostile to it. God is at work in people's lives, and when you share the gospel, there will be people who receive it. Do you believe that? But secondly, we see that people will reject you, right? Verse 5, He says, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So, Jesus is preparing them to face rejection before they ever do, they're to be prepared to face rejection. That's what this shake the dust off your feet is. It's not just something to say, hey, don't get the next house dirty or something like that. You know, it's, 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 a, it's actually a symbolic sign that Jewish people would do when they would go into a Gentile territory and leave. When they would leave, they would shake the dust off their feet, feet as a sort of judgment against the Gentile people. And so, can you imagine Jesus saying to His disciples, go into Jewish territory, and if they don't receive this message, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet. That would have been jarring to a Jewish person because they only do that to the Gentiles. So basically, this would be saying, this in this act, it would be symbolizing to the Jewish people, you are no better than a Gentile. You have rejected God. And this is not i um, I'm better than you sort of statement. This, this act would have been an act of grace, actually, so that when they saw it, it might alarm them, maybe stir up their heart to repentance, that maybe they've missed it. so we also, like them, at times we are going to experience rejection, you guys. If you engage in this mission, you will be rejected, right? At times you will be. So if you're engaged in the mission and you are never rejected, we, we must ask, am I actually presenting Christ? And if we are engaged in the mission and we are always rejected, we must ask, am I presenting Christ? Right? If I'm always being rejected, it could just be because I'm a hypocrite. It could just be because I'm a jerk. It could just believe that I've tied so many idols to my faith in my life that people can't unclutter those things to actually receive the gospel. Right? So, so rejection is one. And the third one is perplexing. Perplexing. That's what we see here. So, it's rejection, reception, and I thought I would say perplexing, right, just for your sake. Okay, so perplexing, right? Notice what happens here in verse 7. We have another king, don't we? See that? We have another king. We have Herod the Tetrarch, the son of Herod the Great. He hears about everything that's happening, and what is he hearing? Well, I'm guessing he's heard about what Jesus did in Luke chapter 8. It's pretty powerful, amazing stuff. I'm sure the news spread about that. But in the context here, he's hearing about what these 12 are doing. Right? Verse 6 says, they went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everyone. So, the activity of his people is, is stirring up some questions for Herod, and he is perplexed. You see that in verse 7. He wonders if John, who he says he beheaded, was raised from the dead. Other people are saying, maybe this is Elijah. If you were with us in the spring, you remember that we went through the life of Elijah, and we saw that he actually never died. He was taken up, right? He, he never experienced, he never tasted death. Right? And then someone just said, oh, maybe he's just one of the prophets of old maybe like the greatest prophet, Moses, or something like that. So Herod has no idea that his words are foreshadowing what's going to happen to Jesus. He would die, and Jesus himself would actually rise again. Herod has no idea that what he's saying is foreshadowing that. And notice Herod says what? Who is this? Who is Jesus? We've seen this asked many times in Luke already, haven't we? And so if you aren't a Christian, and actually if you are a Christian even, This is the most important question in your life that you could ever consider. Who is Jesus? That's the most important question. Herod asks this question, and then it says in verse 9, he sought to see Him. We don't don't know Herod's motivations for why he seeks to see Him, but we also know that he certainly could have just summoned Jesus. He's a king, right? He, He could have just ordered Jesus to come, but he doesn't do that. I think many of us are like that today. When it comes to just spirituality in our world today, that's kind of the mantra, right? We're always searching, never hoping to find, aren't we? Always seeking, always on a journey, never hoping to end up anywhere. People might say, I'm intrigued by Jesus, but I don't want to think about it today. Not today, but someday. But we don't see how our hearts can and will become hard. This is not not a question you want to procrastinate on. Because as you get to the end of the Gospel of Luke, you see that this same guy who says, now is seeking to see Jesus, his heart becomes so hard at the event of Jesus' crucifixion. Don't procrastinate on this question. Who is Jesus? Well, guys, he's in a league all his own. Even the greatest prophet Moses doesn't compare, and we learn this through the next story. The comparisons continue, and we see that this kingdom not only spreads, it satisfies like nothing else. It satisfies. Look in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them in the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, "Uh, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied." And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So, the disciples are back. They wanna tell Jesus all that's happened. I'm sure you would too. And Jesus withdraws with them to a place of privacy in Bethsaida. And even though Jesus desires to be alone with his disciples, the crowd doesn't want Jesus to be alone. The crowd wants Jesus to be with them, so he seeks them out, you know. I, I mean, I couldn't help but think this week as a parent just how often I want to be alone, you know, and your kids still just find you, and you're like, oh, my gosh, there's no place. I can ever be alone, you know. I'll go crawl into the attic or something some days, you know what I mean? I love my kids, by the way. I love them. You just need a break sometimes, right? So um, Jesus wants to be alone with his disciples, but notice in verse 11, they, they come to him. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't roll his eyes. What does it say? He welcomes them. He has something else He'd rather do, but, but he gladly welcomes all who would come to him that day. And he does what the disciples have been doing he preaches and he heals. You see that in verse 11? As he welcomes all that are curious and are willing to come, it means he, he welcomes you this morning. Like you, you don't inconvenience Jesus. Do you understand that? So, verse 12 indicates the day began to wear away. So this is a long sermon, okay? This is a long sermon. Uh, you may think I'm long-winded, but we've never had to bring a meal in in the middle you know, of a sermon I've preached, so at least since I've been here. So, um, but, but that's what's going on, right? This is a long sermon. These people are getting their needs met by Jesus, but there is a new need that's arising. These people are following Jesus like, so uh, intensely that they haven't even thought about how they're gonna eat dinner. And so the 12 come to Jesus and they say, hey, we've been in those villages, there's food, there's markets there, right? Send them away. They can lodge there for a while. They can eat, right? They could figure it out themselves. They need to eat. This seems like a wise statement, right? This is logical. But what does Jesus say? Well, look in verse 13. What does He say? He says, well, you give them something to eat. This empowered you to go out and do all this other stuff. You give them something to eat, right? Well, they say, well, Jesus, we have five loaves and two fish, uh, John, the Gospel of John, this, act- this account of feeding the 5,000 is actually in all four gospel accounts, which is extremely rare. It's only things like the resurrection and crucifixion that all wind up in all four. Really important story. Um, so, in John chapter 6, we learn that this bread was barley loaves. That's actually what it was, which was food for the poor, okay? And that Andrew himself, the disciple, was the one who found the small boy with this food. So, uh, put it this way. If barley bread had a Yelp review, it would not sell very much. Okay, one commentator said about barley bread in the first century, quote, it's lowered gluten content, so if you're gluten-free, it's great, right? It's lowered gluten content, low extraction rate, less desirable taste, and indigestibility made it a staple of the poor in Roman times. It sounds delicious, right? Delicious. Essentially what barley loaves were was like eating plain Triscuits, basically. Okay, I don't know many people who like the plain version of Triscuits, You know, plain triscuits I think are made out of whole wheat flour and sadness. You know, basically. So, um, but you know, it's it's one of those things that you have to take a drink between every bite, or else you'll you know dehydrate and die. So, they're, they're no one's favorite snack, basically. And so the disciples have this send them away plan that develops into this barley bread plan. Lastly, they come up with this final plan, right? We can go buy the food plan, right? Which would have been extremely Expense, they can't afford that, right? But look at what they're doing, they're looking to these obvious, natural solutions. We need money, we need a market, Jesus, that's what we need, right? They've done the math, they see the crowds, they see what they have, and they think we can't do it. And they're right, they can't. That's good math. You don't have the amount of food you need. But their math failed to factor in Jesus as a variable, right? But I'm, I'm sure we would, would have responded the same way. I mean, here, we're in the middle of a wilderness. They're, they're in a desperate place, or a desolate place, verse 12 says, and we're told the crowd is calculated as 5,000 men. That doesn't account for women and children. Back then, you would count just by the head of household. So think about it, guys. This is probably a crowd closer to 20,000 people. Just imagine that, right? And, and if you were standing there with a few triscuits, I mean, you would have thought the same thing. You know? I mean, just imagine, seriously, imagine this. That's like packing out the Moda Center, okay? You're envisioning a Moda Center packed out, a sea of people, they're extremely hungry, and all you have is some Triscuits and two fish, right? How are we going to figure this out? Jesus told the disciples to get them seated in the groups of 50, evidently for convenience in serving. What are the disciples thinking? you know, seat people down, and and they're getting ready to eat, but there is no food, right? They must have thought this is, this looks kind of crazy, right? And I think we kind of need to remember that obeying Jesus will often look crazy at times, right? It doesn't mean that it is crazy, but it means it might look crazy. Living on the edge of faith will often look foolish. It may feel foolish to you. It might look foolish to your family and friends. It'll especially look foolish to the world. But Jesus isn't trying to figure out this problem. He knew what he's going to do. It wasn't about the food, it was actually about the disciples. And similarly, this morning, it's about us. We, We are faced with regular life experiences where we see our need and we see what we have and we don't see a way forward, right? Whether it's financial, relational, emotional, spiritual, physical. This test is for us as well. Do, do we merely look at the material like the disciples do, or do we look at Jesus? Uh, Alvin Plantica, who's a Christian philosopher, he described our lives in this way. He says, if you're in a dark street and you lost your keys somewhere on the street, but there's a street lamp, right? everything's dark but this one area where there's light, he said it's, it's one thing to say, I'm going to go start to look for my keys underneath the street lamp. He said, it's a whole other thing to say, my keys can't possibly be out in the dark because I can't see them. Do you see? It's one thing to look for them where you can see, but if they're not there, it's, it's, it's a whole other thing to say they can't possibly be out in the dark. This, that's a, a very good image for how we often approach circumstances in our lives, where we see this huge gap between what we need and what we have. Our vision is so narrow, and all we can seem to focus on is seemingly normal, it's, it's material, and, and what is right in front of us. And when what life is throwing at us doesn't process perfectly, right, we often think, I don't see a path forward, there cannot be a path forward, I need my keys, but I don't see them in the light, there's a gap, there's a chasm. And what Jesus wants His disciples, including you, if you follow Him this morning, to see is to not look at the ground, but to look up at Him, He's testing His disciples because He desires that their faith would grow. He wants the twelve, and He wants you to see this morning that only He can fill the chasm between what you need and what you have. He's the only one. We don't have what we need in and of ourselves. Jesus is the only one who can fill that chasm. So, Jesus takes this humble meal. He gives thanks for it. If you look down in verse 16, and you see Him do that, and His disciples distribute it, and we are told that everyone ate, and they were satisfied. They, they had more than enough. There was leftovers. So, here's two kinds of people in this world. There are those who love leftovers, and there are those that are wrong, Right? leftovers are like the encore, aren't they? You know, it's that, like when the band comes back out at the end. You know, it, it's always better the next day with leftovers. Why, why would Jesus produce leftovers? Why would He do that? Did He miscalculate? Did He go, oh, it was a little bit more than I was thinking I needed? Was it a mistake? This is no small thing that there were leftovers, you guys. Jesus didn't create leftovers because He knew His twelve liked leftovers. He didn't do it because he knew they maybe needed lunch the next day. This is a picture of the abundant provision of Jesus, the abundance that Jesus gives. God provides for His children and their needs and He does it abundantly. Do you see what's going on here? He provides for His people and in a way that no one in the world can provide and when He provides, He satisfies. He satisfies. Jesus is pictured here as the true and better Moses. Do you see this? Is this one of the prophets that has risen from old? Oh, not at all. Way better. Right? We're going to see Moses next week at the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a reason for that. The experience of these Israelites, they look at what they're doing. They're in a desolate place. This would be very vivid for them. They're in the wilderness. They're by a sea. They've just been fed miraculously. This conjured up for them clear images of when their own people were literal slaves in Egypt and God looked out on their slavery, he heard their cries and he rescued them from it and he sent Moses, Israel's most respected and revered prophet. And Moses led Israel out of slavery through this miraculous parting of the sea and they wandered in the wilderness for years and years and years. And yet they were fed with manna from heaven. If you remember the story, you can read about it in Exodus chapter 16, where they'd wake up and there'd be this dust-like thing on the ground, and they all said, "What is it?" They said, "It's food." So that's literally what they called it. They called it, "What is it?" Like we're having, "What is it?" again this morning. It's literally how they talked about it, right? Right. See, all this imagery, you guys, you've got to see, is so vivid here. What Jesus is doing is he's showing these people that the kingdom of God is here and now. He's at minimum tipping his hat to Israel, to the twelve tribes. And He's saying this is now being lived out in these 12 apostles, a new nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race. We have a new kingdom, right? See, Jesus doesn't just do crazy things. That's not how you're supposed to read this like, wow, Jesus is amazing, right? He could have done anything more entertaining than this, probably, right? He could have said, for now, I'm going to teleport, or I'm going to hold my breath for a day, or you know, I'm going to turn this tree into warm pretzel bread or something. You know, he could have done all these things that are just like, wow, that's incredible, right? But he did this. Why? Because he's telling you something, right? He's telling you who he is and what he's come to do. He is the everlasting king, and he is good, and his kingdom satisfies. The search is over. See, what Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account focus on is the satisfaction of the people. They ate they were satisfied. The great um, Jim Carrey, you know, the guy who started The Mask and Ace Ventura Pet Detective, you know, the great whatever, uh, he once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer, that it doesn't satisfy. And we are living in a day where people say, You do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Right, where people say, go do you, achieve your dreams. You do you, I'll do me. We're just on this satisfaction journey in life. We'll figure it out. It's out there. Let me just say I have a huge problem with that mantra because it's projecting false hope. It's pointing you towards a wrong end. It's actually cruel. And we know this, we know this, that you return to barley bread every week, don't you? Thinking it'll satisfy you. So you thought indulging in pornography would have a different result this time. You thought exerting your anger and control over your kids was, was finally gonna leave you satisfied. You thought eating right and exercising was gonna solve everything. You thought doing one good deed every day was gonna be the thing. You thought your new job was gonna be the solution to your old job because you hated it. You thought your increased income was gonna fix everything. You thought a vacation was what you needed or new goals and new strategies. You thought a new relationship that this was it or or a new hobby was the meal that you were missing out on. You, You thought your success and the praise that you heard ringing in your ears was the solution but you woke up the next day and it didn't work. You've discovered that the great theologian, Jim Carrey, was right. You're still hungry. And Jesus knows this. He knows that the only meal that you could ever feast on that will satisfy your hunger is Him. And so God the Father sent His Son Jesus into the world so that you could have lasting food for your soul. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 6, when He feeds the 5,000 there, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me and believes in Me will never hunger again." How will we ever be satisfied? Well, there's a reoccurring price that's talked about in this meal. It's, it's the disciples' plan. It's the disciples' concern in part, and we, this is our call to worship this morning. Isaiah 55, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. So, so how can you be invited to enjoy an expensive meal that you can't pay for? Well, someone has to pay for it for you, right? I don't know if you've ever been there. I think back to when I was in college and uh, uh, we would go love going to this barbecue place called Lucille's, and they had this item on the menu that was hundreds of dollars. Insane amount of meat. And me and my college friends were like, oh, that'd be awesome, we can't afford it. You know, I was, I was trying to save it for an engagement ring, I had no money. And so me and some friends, we went on a, a road trip to Washington, and I uh, had one friend whose parents said, hey, if you can ride a deer and get it on camera, we'll, we'll pay for that meal. And I was in college, so we were like, we're doing this thing. And that couple's son actually rode a deer for two seconds. And I kind of caught it on film, but I was so excited that I was jumping up and down. It was a little hard to see. But, but they validated the video, and they took us out to eat this meal. And, I, I, man, when we sat down, they brought all that food out. I immediately felt full. It was so much food. But we feasted, and we dined, and we laughed, and we told stories, and it was a great time. An amazing time. I'll never forget it, telling you about it today, right? But I I could not afford that meal. I could never afford that meal. So, when somebody offers you a meal that you can't afford and it's beyond your means, how do you respond to that? How do you respond? Well, you could say, how much do I owe you? I'll pay you back someday. You could say, I'm fine with the barley bread. I'm good. I'll pass. You could refuse it, And you could say, I could never take that from you. My ego will not allow it. Or the best way to honor that lavish gift of food is actually to eat it and to eat it with the one who gave it to you and to share it with as many people as possible. Jesus is offering you, guys, this morning, the richest meal ever. And you could never have afforded the cost to eat that meal. And so Jesus came and he paid the price of that meal. But he didn't buy it with money, he, he paid for it with his own blood. Jesus is the one who came into the world and he experienced a true deep spiritual hunger at the cross so that he would be the bread of life. He, he said, I thirst so that he would be the living water. He said he, he paid the price of life so that we could go and eat without cost, so that we could feast on his life. One day for those who have received Jesus, there is going to be a wedding. Do you remember this? At the end of your Bibles? And anyone who's professed faith in Jesus, who's come to Jesus in faith, who has never, who's been promised they will never hunger again, we, we see in that last day a great wedding. We will be reconciled to God, and we are told that we will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This meal is pointing you towards that great day. And so, a lot of us, we would look at our lives this morning and we would say, maybe I'm a bit unnourished. I'm a bit malnourished. My life is nibbling away at at loaves and fish. And Jesus says, My bread is as grand of a meal for thousands, and I offer it to you today. Come to me. I am the food that satisfies. So, the kingdom is spreading, you guys. Do you believe that? Do you believe it's spreading? Jesus isn't losing. He's winning, right? His kingdom is spreading. He is victorious. And one day that will all come to light. Are you engaged? That kingdom is spreading, guys. It's not depressing. It's not a sad kingdom. It's not something you would begrudgingly accept. It's the only kingdom that satisfies. So are you satisfied this morning? Let's all stand together. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna go into our time of response and our singing. God, I'm reminded this morning uh, of your words in Isaiah nine, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Jesus, you are our true king. God, we recognize you, we give you the glory that you are a king like no other king. thank you for what you've done for us, for offering us your life so that we might be reconciled to you, that we would be satisfied. Father, I pray that we would come to you today in faith, no matter where we're at, um, no matter what we've been nibbling on, um, just no matter the shame or the doubts that we have, I pray we'd come to you in faith this morning and and receive you and be more actively involved. And the work that you're doing in this world. God, I pray right now that you would speak so clearly to us, that you would do a work in us that only you can do, God, that you would shape us into the people that you are wanting to see here in East County. Lord, you are the hope of the world, you're the hope of our lives, you're the hope of Gresham. God, you're the the hope of every person that's ever stepped foot on this earth. So I pray, Lord, that we would see that, we would savor that this morning, and that we would share that with the world. pray these things in Christ's name, amen.